You're listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy. Hello, and thanks for listening to Grounded. Today, we continue our multi-part series on the Hanford Nuclear Site with Ken Niles, the Oregon Department of Energy's Assistant Director for Nuclear Safety. When Hanford stopped plutonium production and turned to cleanup, the early 1990s dream was to complete the project in just 30 years. Needless to say, that dream won't become a reality. Ken is here to tell us why. Ken, welcome back to Grounded. Thanks. We're going to keep our Hanford story going. In this episode, we have covered the basic history of the site and the nuclear weapons production. And we talked in our last episode kind of about the extent of the problem that we now face at the site. Let's get started talking about how you transitioned to cleanup and what progress we've made so far. How do you even wrap your head around getting started with a project this big? It was not easy. It was. Uh, it took months and months of, of negotiation between the state of Washington and the U.S. Department of Energy and the Environmental Protection Agency. And there were some bumps in the road and some tough issues that... Uh, some cases took the involvement of the governor. Some cases took the involvement of the energy secretary. Eventually, they did reach an agreement, and they signed the cleanup agreement May 15, 1989. So we're 28 years into cleanup since that was signed. They envisioned at the time a 30-year cleanup. And if, they, if only they had been right, we'd be wrapping things up and telling you about how little there is left. Wouldn't but that be nice? It would be nice. And it's, you know, it's easy at this point to, to maybe be a little critical that they underestimated the cost and the complexity and the time because they did underestimate all those things. But they also didn't have a lot of the answers at the time. They were doing the best they could in terms of the knowledge they had. When they set cleanup milestones, there was a lot of TBDs to be determined because they knew that as they got into the cleanup, as they got into investigating the waste streams and the waste sites, they would find some things that they weren't sure existed. And uh, in most cases, even that exceeded what they thought might occur. So we're 28 years into a cleanup that now we're guessing will go another 50 or 60. It's, it's really difficult to say what that will be. So this tri-party agreement that they've signed, has it evolved over the years since they first signed it in 1989? There have been uh, hundreds of changes. Some are, most are relatively minor. Uh, just uh, a lot of different aspects that uh, sometimes need updating. In some cases, there have been some significant delays and significant uh, negotiations that went into that. One of the things that we've seen in going back a few years when you look at negotiations and, and delays, because that's what they usually come up with, is we're not able to do this. And, and oftentimes there are very good technical reasons. Sometimes it's just a matter of not having available funding which is a, a great frustration for us and a great frustration, I know, for the regulators that Congress is not providing enough money to, to move forward. But if you go back, some of these major negotiations 15, 20 years ago, when they pushed back a milestone on some big cleanup project, oftentimes they were able to advance something else. So there was a what uh, one of the regulators termed gives and gets. So we give you this, we get this. In recent years, because there's been the, the funding has been so tight, there have been almost no gets. Hmm. We give you extra time, and that's about it. 
And uh, we, we saw that uh, about a year and a half ago with some major delays in the Central Plateau cleanup where virtually everything got pushed back a decade or more. And it was, for the most part, related to lack of funding. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of negotiations were going into the tri-party agreement? Was it, uh, you know, assigning responsibility for a certain cleanup item, or how did that work? For the most part, as far as what we really care about, getting away from the really minutia of the tri-party agreement. So there is an agreement. It's, it's joint regulated between the state of Washington and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And they basically have split the responsibility. So there are certain waste sites, certain waste cleanup things, are the state of Washington's lead, and others are EPA. And for the most part, those haven't really changed through the years. But for example, what what could change and what could be negotiated would be the Department of Energy has a deadline to either deliver a document, which would require perhaps completing some site characterization before they can do that. Uh, It might have to do with a cleanup of uh, demolition of a facility or the movement of some type of waste from one facility to another. And there have been a lot of reasons that there have been delays. As I mentioned at the beginning, there was a lot that was not known. In some cases, when they start cleaning up a burial site, they find it was a lot larger than the records had indicated. So it's more complex, and perhaps the waste is a little bit more volatile, which slows them down, which requires them to take additional care and and additional time. And the regulators have generally, when, when they see that the Department of Energy and its contractors are making a concerted effort towards getting something done, the regulators have been lenient. And, uh, and I think, you know, Oregon as well has supported that and others as well. What has been troubling is when there has been no attempt to move forward with the project. And that has happened as well many times over the years. And is that usually a, a budgetary issue? Usually, but not always. So you mentioned that Oregon is really interested in this, and we're not a member of the tri-party agreement, and we're not a regulator, but we really care about this because the site is right along the Columbia River. Uh, We want to make sure that the cleanup is protective of the river. Do we weigh in at all when the tri-party agreement is being reviewed, and uh, how is our voice heard? Sometimes I describe our role as the noisy neighbor because we do sometimes have to make a little bit of noise. We do have a good working relationship with the Department of Energy and with the regulators. And we, we, once in a while, we're caught short and caught by surprise by something major. But usually, we're given a heads up on discussions that are going on. If there's going to be a major tri-party agreement development, we might be told in advance of discussions that are just starting or that are underway. Here's what one party might be thinking. So we are given an opportunity to provide some input. And sometimes they'll, they'll ask us for our reaction. If we went this way, what do you think the response would be? What would your response be? So we get that kind of opportunity as well. So you can't just jump in and start cleaning things up. You have to lay the groundwork and figure out what the heck is there to clean up. How do you get started in a project like that? So there are different federal and state laws that uh, regulate the cleanup at Hanford. And generally, even though there are differences, they generally require the same type of thing. You can't just dive in with a shovel or a bulldozer. You have to understand what the extent of the contamination is. You have to look at at different alternatives for how to deal with that contamination. Uh, You have to make sure you're not making the situation worse, which you could certainly do. So it's a a cumbersome process. It's a time-consuming process. And 
dating back to you know mid 1989 when the tri-party agreement was signed there was a very noticeable absence of work being done in the couple of years to follow because the department of energy and its contractors were going through this regulatory process of identifying what needed to be done and what the priorities were within a couple of years you know they'd gotten through those basic uh, processes Part of what they needed as well is they needed disposal facilities, they needed treatment facilities, and those as well took time to go through a regulatory process of citing those. So it began to be about four or five years into the cleanup that we actually began to see some real progress and some real noticeable things being done in terms of these treatment facilities and the disposal facilities and moving forward with those along with some of the on-the-ground cleanup. In some cases, there were such obvious contaminants and such obvious solutions that there is a process by which they could skip most of those regulatory processes and go right to an expedited cleanup. And they did that in a number of cases, again, so early actually, on. So there actually was low-hanging fruit that they could There was. Yeah, that's great. There was, absolutely, and they were able to do that within a few years while they were, you know, churning through the paperwork on everything else before they could really get, really get advanced in those. They're five years in before they really start seeing some progress, which is so funny to hear you say that when they thought the whole cleanup would be done in 30. And I imagine those five years went by pretty fast. In a lot of respects, they did. So in that time, uh, we saw in 1993 the first change in presidential administrations. And that was from George H.W. Bush to Bill Clinton. And we've had a number of other presidential changes uh, through the years. And it really hasn't mattered that much which party takes power or leaves power. Uh, in terms of the reaction at Hanford, we've seen pretty much some of the same things happen. We see a new energy secretary appointed. Uh, sometimes quickly, sometimes it's taken many months. We see a new head of the environmental management program for the Department of Energy, who is the person in charge of the cleanup at Hanford and other sites around the nation. Sometimes very quickly, sometimes it takes many months. We have acting person in that role right now at Hanford. Uh, at some point, either the energy secretary or the new head of the environmental management cleanup will look at Hanford and say, there's got to be a faster, cheaper way to get this done. And then we spend it seems in many cases tens of millions of dollars or even more and many months or a year or more trying to take some new tact before we realize or they realize there isn't a fast easy way to do at Hanford and you get someone like Senator Patty Murray of Washington State who's been through this so many times in a leadership position in the Senate who by now has is saying you know, hey folks, I know you're new, I know you want to put your stamp on things, but there isn't a faster, easier way to get this done at Hanford. You just need to stick it out and spend the money that it's going to require. That's an interesting dynamic because rather than it being a question of whether or not it should be a priority, it sounds like everybody realizes it should be a priority, but like you said, they want to put their own stamp on it or find a better way. And at this point, there isn't a better way. Uh, we just need to move forward and try to make the progress as we can instead of this kind of stopping and starting every time somebody new comes in. 
And we see we see some things that that just from the outside just seem like such a time waster. We see a consolidation of power at headquarters, and we see power pushed back out to the field offices, so to the sites like Hanford, and then another consolidation of power back at headquarters, and then it goes back to the site managers. And we've seen that so many times. We've seen five-year plans, we've seen ten-year plans, we've seen closure plans, we've seen so many things. And it again with Hanford, it gets back to it's going to take more than five years. It's going to take more than 10 years. We know the direction to go. Just dive in and, and keep the progress moving. Well, and these people have, have been working on it for decades. I mean, there are experts that are there, and it seems like it, it would work better to lean on their expertise rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. I think even at the beginning of this year, there was talk about changing the vitrification plant, which we haven't. we still haven't figured out how we're actually going to make that work, but then somebody kind of was wanting to pause it and go a completely different direction. And that's happened so many times. There, you know, the vit, the vitrification is a huge expense and is a, um, you know, we're 18 years into, 17 years into the construction of facilities that aren't scheduled to be fully operational for another 17, 18 years. Uh, so it's it's not surprising that that people want to say how can we do this differently and how how can we do it cheaper? Sure. The problem is from Oregon's perspective and from the state of Washington's perspective and others is that these other cheaper, faster methods aren't as environmentally sound. They don't protect the environment. The waste form that you might generate would not be lasting, and so that's why there's been so much pushback by by Washington and Oregon and others about keeping the cleanup moving forward in the direction it's been going. And doing it, but doing it right. Doing it right. Doing it right, absolutely. So we've, we've talked a little bit about the tri-party agreement just a few moments ago and, and change of administration. Congress has also been involved, not just from a funding aspect, but early again in this cleanup when the full breadth of the scope of cleanup at Hanford and other sites around the country really began to be revealed in the early to mid-1990s. And there were actually several attempts within Congress to usurp the tri-party agreement in part of the direction of the, the new, new administrations, new energy secretaries who said, you know, we, I know we signed up in good faith four years ago, our predecessors, five years ago, eight years ago, whatever it was. But as we look at this now, as we gain more knowledge we realize we just can't meet these milestones, and we we need to somehow change things. And we they they actually found some sympathetic members of Congress who did introduce legislation that would have would have done away with the tri-party agreement. And there was such a, a fight back from the state of Washington, and a fight back from other states that have large Department of Energy sites that push back as well, saying you know they don't want that to happen to them as well. And so we've we've seen. That's been a long time since we've really seen that happen. Congress has kind of learned that, that its its best method to fight that is just through lack of funding. In the case of proposing that the tri-party agreement be removed, what, what is the primary concern there? Is it that the state would lose some of its ability to, to give direction and to make progress? I mean, does it take the state out of it? Is that what the problem would be there? That's what they would have done in some cases. In other cases, it would have, uh, it would have just eliminated the milestones. So the Department of Energy would proceed with cleanup at its own pace without any kind of regulatory authority over them, uh, without any potential 
a threat of fines or other things to maybe keep them moving forward, it would just be up to the Department of Energy as to when things might get done. So it's, it's a layer of accountability to make sure that we're moving forward and at least trying to reach milestones, even yes. if they get kicked down the road a little. Yes, mm. yeah. And we felt that way. You know, milestones are, are there to drive cleanup. And I mentioned earlier when the Department of Energy is showing progress, even if they miss a milestone, if they're showing progress, everybody's pretty happy with that. When they're not showing progress, and if there were no hard and fast milestones, that would be an issue. The Hanford site actually has a, a pretty active Facebook page, and they post updates on a pretty regular basis of even just little milestones, because uh, those are worth bragging about too. Even if we're not even close to cleanup, they are making progress on an almost daily basis. There, there has been a lot of progress. They, you know, they, they do tout the success they've had in terms of how many milestones they've met versus how many they've missed. Uh, <laughs> sure, understandably. Yeah, and, and, and it really is a good story. At the same time, it doesn't account for those milestones that have been moved back. So if you, if you meet 90% of your milestones, but you had to move 15 of those back by a decade, and then you eventually meet them, yeah, it's a good thing, but it's still not quite the same story as, as meeting it all on the original dates. At the same time that we're trying to move forward with the Hanford cleanup, there are other cleanup projects and nuclear sites that are closing. How do they balance all of these projects that are happening at the same time? It's, it's been a struggle. There are a number of sites around the nation that are very large with very big needs, just like Hanford. Uh, Hanford has gotten, I think, almost every year of funding more money than any other site. Savannah Riverside, South Carolina, has been a close second and might have jumped over Hanford a couple of years. And there's a large site in Tennessee and a large site in Idaho. Uh, there were some smaller sites, uh, Rocky Flats outside of Denver, uh, Mound and Fernald in Ohio, that if you look at them on a scale in terms of what compared to Hanford, they're about the size of Hanford's 300 area, <laughs> which is now virtually cleaned up. Mm-hmm. And pretty small in comparison. Uh, and pretty small in comparison. And that's not to discount the complexity of the cleanup, especially at Rocky Flats, where they had uh, at least two large fires involving plutonium in their fabrication facilities and manufacturing facilities. But there was a the thought that accelerating the cleanup at those smaller sites was doable. If they pushed more money into it right at the beginning, they could get things done and save instead of going on and on and on for 20 years threw additional money in, maybe you could get it done in six or seven or eight years. And they were able to do that in part at the expense of Hanford because they took some money from Hanford in the mid-1990s so that they could go forward with these cleanup at, at uh, Rocky Flats and at Mound and Fernald. The folks at Hanford always thought the deal was we take your money now and we'll give you additional money later. And we never really saw that happen. I mean, we've seen Hanford cleanup funding grow and increase, but we never really saw that same type of put this excess amount of funding in to really make some strategic differences, uh, like we saw at Rocky Flats and Mound and Fernal. Those sites were all closed down uh, many years ago um, with a lot of good successes. We just haven't been able to recover in some respects uh, at Hanford. So the trade-off was never really complete. There never was the trade. That was uh, that was a f- the feeling of folks at Hanford, yes. 
You mentioned that the tri-party agreement is reviewed on a pretty regular basis, and sometimes milestones are moved and pushed back. Does it always go along pretty well that you know the, the three groups can meet in the middle and find a, a way to move forward, or is it a little more difficult than that? Sometimes it has been more difficult, and sometimes it's, uh, it's ended with litigation. In, in the cases I'm going to talk about, it's always been the state of Washington uh, filing litigation. EPA, as a fellow federal agency, is not going to take the U.S. Department of Energy to court. Sure. It's, they have their own method of, of trying to induce cleanup uh, to move forward. Uh, state of Washington, though, has had to uh, initiate litigation on a, uh, at least three or four different occasions. One was to get the Department of Energy to move forward with removing free liquids from the single-shell tanks. So there was concern that because these a lot of the single-shell tanks have leaked, uh, would be to get the liquids into the double-shell tanks, at least that would lessen the impacts of further tank leaks. There were some difficulties by the Department of Energy in meeting the deadlines, and eventually that did go to court to uh, through or was sanctioned through a, a court order to make that happen. So in that case, the state of Washington essentially won. And the state of Washington yeah. was able to drive a more aggressive schedule through its, its legal action. Which is probably a good thing when you think about that now here we are in 2017 and now the double shell tanks in a couple of cases are at risk of leaking. Well, in one it already has leaked from at least the inner shell mm -hmm. and the others we, we certainly have concerns mm -hmm. about. So good call, Washington. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one other issue that they took to court related to limits on how much waste could be sent to Hanford. Without getting into all the details, because it was, it was way too lengthy, but uh, the Department of Energy has often thought of uh, Hanford and other sites out west as a great place to store and dispose of waste from other sites throughout their complex, which might be in more populous areas or might be in areas that have very shallow groundwater, for example. Uh, Hanford did take waste, uh, low-level waste and mixed low-level waste from uh, more than a dozen sites throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and disposed of it on site. So there was a, a period when Department of Energy wanted to move fairly significant quantities of a specific type of, of waste called transuranic waste, which is very long-lived waste, to Hanford for storage. There was a couple of shipments that most everybody was agreement with, but when they started talking fairly substantial amounts state of Washington did file suit. Uh, and then they later broad broadened that when the Department of Energy selected Hanford as one of two, they call them regional sites, for the disposal of potentially tens of thousands of truckloads of low-level and mixed low-level waste from throughout the Department of Energy complex. So one thing I always, I frequently asked a friend at DOE headquarters, I said, okay, you have two regional sites. There's one in Hanford, one in Nevada. Where's the regional site in the south or in the east? They said, well, Hanford and Nevada. So those were the, those were the regional sites. DOE was never able to act on that decision. And actually, they went through an a environmental impact statement, made a record of decision, selected Hanford as one of these sites. Because of the litigation and because of some other related things, uh, they eventually, the Department of Energy, agreed to a moratorium on most waste coming to Hanford. There's a couple of, of uh, waste streams that are allowed, 
but for the most part, those tens and tens of thousands of shipments are not going to come to Hanford. Uh, the moratorium now is set upon until the waste treatment plant is fully operational, which is now not scheduled till 2036. So by then, most of those other sites will have long since been cleaned up. So there will not be, we will not be seeing huge amounts of waste come to hand. Uh, and again, that litigation was, was responsible for that. I mean, I can kind of see both sides of that, that you know, more heavily populated areas don't want waste like that nearby. But at the same time, Hanford is already trying to clean up the mess it already has and doesn't necessarily want to bring more to the table when they're trying to make progress with what they have. And it was a, it was a very contentious issue for a lot of years. And I think there's a, a few environmental groups that are the, just ready to pounce on that again should, should the issue arise. Uh, there was actually an initiative in the state of Washington that was passed by 69% of the voters in November of 2004 that basically would have banned any of additional waste coming to Hanford. Department of Energy took it to court, uh, eventually had that blocked and overturned. Federal judge upheld all, all of those rulings by the state courts, and uh, so it was unsuccessful. But at the same time, it you know it showed the uh, the emotion and the opposition to the idea of well let's bring a whole lot more waste into Hanford because we're doing so well with what we have. Right, right. Well, not to mention the actual shipment and the traveling of it also has its own risks moving along communities between where it's coming from and Hanford. There are risks uh, from Oregon's perspective. We have taken a position dating back even before the beginning of Hanford's cleanup, that we will not use transportation safety as a reason to oppose actions at Hanford because we know that a lot of the waste at Hanford eventually will go somewhere else for disposal. So from our perspective, if we can make it safe uh, leaving the site, we can make it safe entering the site. So that's an argument we really have never used. That's great news. So what's an example of low-level waste that Hanford still accepts? I think that there, there's a small graveyard of submarine parts. Is that right? There is a, uh, a huge, huge disposal site for uh, decommissioned Navy submarine reactor compartments and cruiser reactor compartments. So the area within a, a nuclear-powered submarine where the reactor vessel was, where the reactor was, they took out all the spent fuel. They took out any liquids or loose things. They filled it with grout, put steel plates on either end, and then shipped these large components of the ship. It's actually what you see when you see one of these barging up the Columbia River. You actually see the outer hull of the former submarine. And they've sent 129 of these up to Hanford over the years for eventual disposal. They're just sitting in a, sitting in a large pit at this point. Um, and they've really slowed down the number of shipments that they've had. When, at the peak of the decommissioning, they were sending 11 a year. Now we get one or two per year. Uh, so that's one of the main waste streams. There's other small waste streams, such as laboratory waste or waste that's, that's sent for analysis somewhere else and then comes back to hand for where it originated. All right, so this is a big cleanup job. Where is the funding coming from? Funding comes from uh, American taxpayers and uh, comes through uh, the actions of Congress. And it's been a, um, it has been a, without doubt, virtually every year, there has been a lack of funding. 
we go back to the start of cleanup in 1989. The cleanup budget was about a quarter billion dollars, $263 million. It grew to over a billion within about three years, and then eventually grew to $2 billion in another decade. So by 2003, uh, the site was getting just over $2 billion. A year? A year. Wow. And they have, there. I think there were a couple of occasions where it dipped below $2 billion, but for the most part, it's been a 2 to $2.5 billion project every year for the last, well, 15 years. It totals about $45 million. The estimates are it will take another $105 billion to complete cleanup at Hanford. And this is billion with a B. A billion with a B. And Oof. it's a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. And it is so hard to imagine $2 billion isn't enough. But it isn't enough, which is, which is really amazing. But when you look at, and it's complicated a little bit just because there are two Department of Energy offices. So there's one called the Office of River Protection, which is involved with all the treatment of the tank waste and maintaining the tank safety and draining some of the tanks, tank retrievals. That is now on the, on the nature of a billion and a half dollars a year and will need to grow pretty substantially to get into the treatment and to continue through the treatment. All the rest of the cleanup, everything along the Columbia River, all the waste sites, the reactors, the plutonium production facilities, is uh, handled by the the Richland office. Their budget has been in the neighborhood of 900 million to a billion a year. And that is where the problem has really been in terms of seeing sustained cleanup progress. Because about half of that money every year is just goes to what they call MinSafe, keeping things, the lights on, the power on, the safety systems on, the security force there, everything that needs to happen just to keep things safe and keep the people employed that are doing that. So that doesn't leave you a whole lot of money for cleanup. No, so that's just the the bare minimum and then whatever's left over, you can try to make progress. And you look at what they're doing right now and there are a couple of fairly expensive projects. One that's winding up, the the demolition of the plutonium finishing plant, which is over $100 million a year. There's a couple of other $100 million a year projects that are ongoing within a couple of years of completion. But when you look at those three projects, there's not a whole lot more money to do other types of cleanup at the site. So that's, that's one of the problems we face. A real example of what they could do occurred when they received stimulus funding back in Uh, 2009. So Hanford, the Department of Energy was a big winner with stimulus funding. They received over six billion dollars and Hanford got nearly two billion dollars and they received it beginning in April of 2009. Under the rules of that they had two and a half years to spend it all. And what was good from Hanford's perspective is that they had all these identified projects. They'd done a lot of the paperwork we talked about earlier. That was all done. They were ready. They had to train workers, and there was a real inefficiency with this whole stimulus idea because, especially at a site like Hanford, you had to bring in workers, you had to put them through weeks or maybe even months of training, depending on what they were doing, turn them loose to do those jobs for a year or two, and then at the end of it, say goodbye to all these new workers that you've spent a lot of time and money training. 
That's a good point. It's like a huge ramp up with this money to get some stuff done. And then you're basically putting on the brakes as soon as the, the money runs out. It really was. It really was. What was really interesting was to see the list at the time of the cleanup projects they planned. Because you didn't have this MinSafe part. You know, all that's already paid for out of their normal budget. So this was all devoted to cleanup. And with rare exception, most of the folks that uh, are engaged in the Hanford cleanup at all feel the Department of Energy really did a very good job with their stimulus funding. They got a lot done. And it, it really moved them forward in a couple of areas that were really important and saved a lot of money uh, in terms of getting rid of facilities that would have been an ongoing drain. What were some of the projects that were in that list? One of Oregon's priorities, they greatly expanded their groundwater treatment program. They built what is the largest pump and treat system in the Department of Energy's uh, sites, which is in the middle of the site and really is attacking a number of different groundwater plumes. Uh, They expanded their disposal facility, their environmental restoration disposal facility. They put a big focus in towards the demolition of plutonium finishing plant, and though that had to carry beyond because they couldn't get, get it all done in two years, that two-year period where they had additional money to really get started will allow them to finish up late this year or early next year. Uh, They retrieved waste from burial grounds, shipped it off-site for disposal at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in New Mexico, cleaned up dozens of waste sites, tore down, I think, 67 buildings that uh, otherwise were, were being there. They drilled 303 new groundwater wells. A lot was done. They finished Incidental cleanup, if you will, on Rattlesnake Mountain and the Arid Lands Ecology, so part of the buffer area of Hanford, that these waste sites weren't associated with the plutonium processing, but there was still, you know, old Army anti-aircraft facilities and motor pools and barracks and, you know, the waste sites you get with those, the industrial dumps, things like that. So they got all that cleaned up and, and really shrunk the site in terms of what needed to have some cleanup attention to about 20 square miles. So it was really a lot accomplished during that time. They talk at, at Hanford and through the Department of Energy, and they call it a bow wave of funding, is that uh, projects are identified and need to be done and have milestones, they, they're not funded, so they're pushed back. And, and when you look at a bar graph and you see the funding need, and on the right is this huge bow wave of unfunded projects. So there's Again, they, it, if you had another situation where you had a stimulus funding, they're ready at Hanford with a lot of different things to move forward with. They just don't have the don't money. Don't have the money. Well, and you mentioned specifically groundwater cleanup and making huge strides in that with the stimulus funding. And I think that's one of the areas where they've been the most successful in cleanup at the site, right, is, is really treating that groundwater and keeping it out of the river. It has been one of their most, one of the best success stories. They have have greatly reduced the size of the groundwater plumes. They have pulled them off the river in most cases, not all. So we have seen a lot of progress, but it's gonna take several decades more of continuing to operate those facilities before we see really closure towards those uh, groundwater plumes. We've talked a lot about the tri-parties and Oregon's involvement. What about the general public? What has been their reaction to this huge cleanup project? It has, uh, it has varied over the years. There have been times where there has been a, a real push to involve the public and uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, there have been other times where it's been, been less so. 
there have been a, a couple of different occasions where they have, have done some things that really engage the public in terms of long-term planning, if you will, for the Hanford cleanup. And the first time they did this, they, they called it the Future Site Uses Working Group. And it, this, it was a very diverse group. Oregon was included, but a lot of other folks and entities. And it looked at what potential future uses might be for the Hanford site, area by area, and not necessarily 100, 200, but different areas throughout the site and what, what those might be envisioned. And there wasn't complete agreement on all those. The Native American tribes, uh, I think not surprisingly, wanted uh, some of those lands cleaned up such that they could resume their traditional uses of those lands, which requires uh, a more robust cleanup than, than uh, perhaps others are willing to do. But it was a very diverse group that through a series of meetings over the period of many months, did come up to reach enough of a consensus to at least validate the process of, of public involvement at Hanford that people could be engaged on fairly technical topics and make a difference and make good recommendations. Uh, it was followed up the following year by a group called the Hanford Tank Waste Task Force. And this, this occurred at a time when the tank waste treatment ideas at Hanford were changing. From a technical standpoint, some of the original assumptions were not going to be borne out, and so this was an opportunity to get the public to weigh in, which helped again then translate into some meaningful changes in terms of what the planning was for Hanford Tank Waste Treatment. And then the last one is, those were all very short term, both less than a year. The last one is still ongoing, and that was the Hanford Advisory Board, which first met in 1994. And this is a very diverse group as well. It's uh, 31 members, including Oregon, including a representative of our Oregon Hanford Cleanup Board, which is an advisory group to our agency. It includes uh, workforce at Hanford, uh, includes environmental groups, includes members of the public at large, includes local governments. So a very, very diverse group. And this group has works towards consensus advice to the Department of Energy and its regulators. And they have had some very meaningful input, especially early on when, you know, when everything is kind of up in the air in terms of where to go. But the Hanford Advisory Board, very early on, really focused on some things, you know, protect the river, do no further harm when you're in your cleanup. And, and those as well were, were concepts by the Hanford Tank Waste Task Force. So it's an opportunity, and, and I would envision the Hanford Advisory Board is going to have to continue for some time to come. At least I would hope so, because there will be cleanup decisions being made at Hanford on some very substantial things, likely for the next couple of decades. So that has been a meaningful opportunity for the public. You know, and if you talk to Hanford Advisory Board members and, and us as well, there have been times where we felt that our advice perhaps wasn't listened to all that seriously. I think in other cases, uh, we did make a, a meaningful impact. It seems like a group like that would be really meaningful and really helpful. I mean, 31 members, you mentioned how diverse it is, and then you mentioned getting consensus on things. Like, that must be really hard for a diverse group like that to find consensus and agree on what's most important. Sometimes it has been. There, there have been a couple of issues where the board and board leadership knew there would not be consensus. And so in, a lot of, in, in some of those cases, we just did not 
address some of those issues. And, and some of those issues really relate to uh, future missions on the site, uh, which the local folks were pretty supportive of and the regional folks were pretty much opposed to. You know, so we didn't address that and we didn't try and just bang our heads against each other with you know, what would have been a fruitless attempt to come up with a consensus. So right, right. at least we we're, were smart enough to know when to avoid those things. But in other cases, you know, even some very difficult issues, we were able to find consensus and working together. So we're almost 30 years into cleanup. What's left from the big picture standpoint? So what's left is mostly the middle of the site. The cleanup is focused, not entirely, but for the most part, has focused on the Columbia River corridor throughout the, the past 28 years. And there are a couple of waste sites still within that, that were a lot more difficult to deal with. There's uh, one of the reactor areas where they still have sludge from spent fuel. There's a, a really nasty burial ground that's located just adjacent to the parking lot at the Columbia uh, Generating Station nuclear power plant. The actively the active okay. <laughs> ongoing operating nuclear power plant. That's, There's a very nasty that's unfortunate <laughs> burial ground right next to the parking lot, and then there's a really highly concentrated area of, of radioactivity beneath a building in the 300 area, and the groundwater. Uh, you know we can't forget the groundwater throughout the river corridor will be, you know they'll be treating it for decades, but other than that the river the surface cleanup in the river corridor is done. And what we see now is the central plateau. So in the central plateau, you've got all the underground waste storage tanks and all the efforts to try and treat that waste. You've got 42 miles, linear miles of burial grounds. You've got five canyon buildings, hundreds of other facilities. You've got the transuranic waste, which they estimate about 6,500 shipments of transuranic waste yet to be packaged and characterized and sent off the site for disposal. You've got uh, liquid waste disposal sites. So there's a lot to be done. But again, it's all focused within, for the most part now, this 20 square mile area within the center of the site. And that's where the focus will be for the next many decades, however long it takes. So you don't have a crystal ball? You can't tell me when we'll be done? Well, I, I could make up a date and you know <laughs> it would be so far in the future, no one would remember. <laughs> There you have it. No crystal ball can tell us when we'll be done with the Hanford cleanup, but it's safe to say we have decades to go. On our next Hanford episode, we'll tackle one of the biggest challenges, radioactive contaminated tank waste. If you haven't already, listen to our earlier Hanford episodes, including The Atomic Man and Hanford's Burping Tank. All episodes are available on soundcloud.com slash oregonenergy. See photos of Hanford on our blog, energyinfo.oregon.gov, and learn about our work at oregon.gov energy. Subscribe to Grounded on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or tune in. And please rate us. Your reviews help others find our podcast. Until next time, thanks again for listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy.